What's up, everybody? It's your boy back here with episode 85 of the Pen Overflow podcast. Yeah, 85. Um, I just want to make some notes here so you guys know. I'm not releasing part two of Secret Agent 666 today. I came across some pretty cool information that I wouldn't have been able to get, you know, processed by the time I was recording that episode today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to release the episode that I recorded with Daniele Bellelli a few days early. In place of that, I'm going to release the second part of the Crowley series on Friday. So just so you guys know, uh, some critiques I'm making about myself here. I jumped right into it. Uh, I should have slowed the pace down a little bit and kind of built some context who the guy is, but you know, I, I was honestly just really excited to have someone of that stature on the show. He's a really cool guy. Uh, we're definitely going to be doing something again in the future. Uh, however long that is, you know, whenever I think it's a good time to bring him on. Um, I'll reach out to him and see. But that conversation, it went into a lot of different places. And I think you're going to enjoy the show. Uh, remember... Share the show, rate us on iTunes, tell your friends, all that stuff, so we can kind of get the message out there. And I will see you guys on Friday with part two of Secret Agent 666. So, I did a little bit of background on you. Uh, from what I can tell, besides co- or teaching at UCLA, you do a bunch of martial arts for, mm-hmm. for quite a while. Yeah. Um, what arts have you studied? Oh man, that's a long list. Um, I started out uh, mainly with Chinese martial arts, okay. a bunch of different kinds. Um, these days, and by these days, I mean the last 10, 15 years, is more uh, more combat sports. Uh, I did boxing for a while, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, judo, that kind of stuff. Uh, I have, you know, a little bit of a background in martial arts. I did Taekwondo as a kid and wrestling in high school. Now I'm doing jujitsu. Yep. Uh, some of the stuff that I think is kind of interesting, though, like I don't go very deep into striking because I don't really yeah. like getting hit in the head. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. Yeah. What do you uh, What do you think about some of that stuff? Like, I thought about getting into striking at some point, but I just kind of can't really get behind it right now especially since i haven't really gotten too deep into mastering grappling yeah and grappling is way easier to learn in the sense that as long as you don't crank submission and you're not being weird about it you can go pretty realistically and spar with an intense level without killing each other Mm -hmm. can't really do the same thing with striking so striking is always a game of uh Figuring out that sweet spot between going too hard and too soft. Yeah. And so it's a little harder because, um, you know, it's very easy to go a little too hard and take damage to the head that you don't want to do. It's very easy to go too soft where you finish and you don't really know whether was I really doing that well or did the person walk through my punches because I'm not putting power in it or... You know, it's a little harder to get it right. Yeah. I was listening to, uh, yeah, I just started listening to your show to kind of get, you know, a feel for who you are as a, pr- a producer. Mm-hmm. And I was talking, or I was talking, I was listening. Mm-hmm. You mentioned someone uh, 
companion of yours or friend, mm -hmm. he was talking about the philosophy that you need to connect fighting and academics or sure. scholarships. And I, I agree with that in the sense that a lot of people who kind of are immersed in academia aren't very, you know, in tune with their body. Yep. To the sense that uh, a lot of people, like you know, historians who are all about the military and all that, or war history, mm -hmm. they can tell you all about how the violence was done, but they don't understand what it feels like to be in a similar situation. Of course. Um, you probably have a lot more knowledge on that than me, but like, what have you kind of come across and relate to that that type of situation? Well, I mean, I think uh, like you're referring specifically to uh, how sort of the theoretical and the practical need to integrate. Is that working? Okay, yeah. I mean, I think clearly is um, that's one of the problems with academia, with intellectual pursuits in general, is that we have this dumb idea that they can be separated from physical ones and that there is such a thing as an intellect separate from the body. Mm-hmm. And it really isn't. You know, the body affects the mind. The mind affects the body. They are very much interrelated. So the notion that we can just develop one side without the other, I mean, yeah, we can, but the results are not that great because you end up with uh, with embodying stereotypes. You end up with the academic who's just stuck in their head and cannot really relate to real-life experience. You end up with the athlete who's a beast uh, as far as physically is concerned, but is kind of lacking in in more refinement, in ideas, in, in being able to. So, you know, it's it's one of the things that to me is one of the basic things that people should try to get over mm -hmm. because it's healthy. You know, it's really just not a good thing for for anybody. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting to see, especially when you go kind of back into philosophy, guys like you know, Plato talked about indulging, like thinking and sitting and all that, but you also have to move to yeah. fully maximize your potential. And and then you see, you know, modern. I don't really know when it set in. I mm -hmm. think it, it's probably around what the Victorian era. Hard to tell because I mean that divide between uh, body and mind. There were even some schools of Greek philosophies that argue for it. There was definitely a lot of religious stuff that pushed in that direction, seeing the body as an obstacle to the spirituality. Mm -hmm. So you know, things like that are um, make it tricky. And I think it can be. I mean, the dichotomy between mind and body. I think has been has been around a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, something that your specialty is, is comparative religion. Now, uh, something I'm really into is, is the study of religion, specifically Catholicism, because they're a, a huge organization now, and they yeah. have been for a long time. What is comparative religion? If you were, you know, first day of a class teaching that, what would you say it is? I think a lot of it is you're just because uh, I mean I teach intro classes in that so it's really just giving people a bird eye view of the basics idea that exists in various religions and you do a little bit of compare and contrast to see how they address some of the very same issues. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't branched out much too far into other religions very uh, kind of like tertiary to f see where everyone else is at but that sounds like something I'll be really interested in, and 
this what I I wanted to talk about you with today mostly is uh, things like this is going to be rooted mostly in Catholicism because that's what I know. But how organizations like that started so small and now are effectively like political apparatuses today. Yeah, I mean it's one of the things where it's like if you were to in the history of the Catholic Church specifically, one of the things you see at its formation is the fact that it needed to serve a purpose for the Roman Empire. Yeah. For specifically the Emperor Constantine. He needed a religion to unify his empire that was so divided in so many ways. Most people weren't really into some of the ancient uh, Greco-Roman traditions anymore, so that didn't work. A monotheistic religion would be better for him because if he can tie himself to a single source of authority, mm-hmm. it's, it helps him solidify power in terms of I'm the, I'm the guy put in charge, but the one god is a lot more appealing that one of the gods and then another one of the gods may support somebody else kind of thing. Yeah. Judaism didn't do it because it was too tied to one specific ethnicity, and so that didn't quite work for for him. So Christianity was it. Yeah. And the problem was that there were too many variations on Christianity, and he needed, you know, for Christianity to fit his purposes, he needed to make sure that would, they would speak with one voice. Mm-hmm. So he kind of squashed a bunch of alternative versions of Christianity, pushed this one, which would basically, it's what eventually would become the Catholic Church. Um, as far as I know about that, most, uh, before Constantine showed up, and before the Council of Nicaea and they cut all that, there was a much more, uh, there's a lot more Eastern elements in, in Catholicism, you could make the argument. Like, they did believe in reincarnation to a degree, uh, there was, what, 13 books, I believe, were cut from the Bible and then the Apocrypha and all that. Is Christianity as a whole, mm-hmm. would you say that there's influence from Eastern religion or from maybe things earlier than that, like Zoroastrianism? Zoroastrianism, for sure. I mean, even in modern Christianity, a lot of the framework is the same one that has affected Judaism, Christianity, Islam. There's a ton of Zoroastrianism in there. Mm-hmm. As far as other stuff, I mean, before the Catholic Church took over, early Christianity was just a cluster of 10,000 different ideas, often in conflict with each other, often didn't like one another. And there was everything and its opposite. You know, the only thing they all had in common is they all like Jesus. Other than that, they pretty much disagreed on anything that what that means. So... There's, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to generalize because it, there really is just about everything went under the label of Christian. So, so something right. you're mentioning here that I don't actually know anything about is the division that there was almost. What it sounds like you're saying is there was cults of Christianity. Yeah, definitely. Uh, could you go into that a little bit? Sure. I mean, because essentially, what starts out is you have these small Jewish. I mean, early Christianity is not even Christianity, right? It's Judaism. It's its own separate branch of Judaism. And eventually the differences become big enough that it becomes something separate. Yeah. But Christianity starts out as a variation on Judaism. And then because they are, there's no central authority, they are persecuted, they have to do stuff in secret, they have 
different people influenced by Christianity ran with it in completely different directions, starting from just the basics of whether you have the guys who are still trying to keep it within Judaism and others who are trying to branch off and kind of get rid of more the Jewish specific aspects of Christianity and make it into a more universal religion. Mm -hmm. You have, uh, you know, the people who say we should stick to kosher laws, the ones who say, no, we don't. The ones who say that you need to, you know, there were all, it basically, there was no single authority because everybody was trying to say this is what Jesus would want us to do and to believe. But the reality is that none of them knew for sure, and none of them had necessarily more authority than the next guy. So just about everybody could come up with their own variation on Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it did happen, which is why actually for quite a while there were some Christian sects where who hated each other as much as they hated non-Christians. Mm-hmm. And then that's where Constantine was like, okay, I'm going to give you guys a deal, but I need you guys to be unified. So uh, let's pick whichever one of you guys seem to be the strongest. I'll go with, and the other ones need to go. Yeah. Which paradoxically meant that there was more persecution. There was actually one last pagan emperor after Constantine, a guy by the name of Julian, who returned to more pre-Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. And he allowed more freedom of religion for Christians than when there were Christian emperors. Because what happened is he allowed freedom of religion for everybody. And whereas when there were Christian emperors, they push one variation on Christianity and heavily squashed all other variations. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, it was something I learned recently, that, uh, just to give context to the audience. Uh, paganism is just anything that isn't classified under Christianity, yes? Yeah. Okay. It's kind of, I mean, nobody would say, I am a pagan. It's kind of the term that Christian used for, for the others. So uh, one of the things that interests me the most is how the Roman Empire kind of created a, almost like a government agency mm-hmm. that they could separate out and say that they're not associated with Mm -hmm. the church. And the way I I know it best is through the Crusades. Right. Is they got, you know, through all the propaganda they used, they got whatever, it's like 60,000 people. Yeah, I forgot the exact numbers. To just go and roll through uh, the Middle East and basically reconquer the Byzantine Empire. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... From a political perspective, that, I think, set the precedent for a bunch of other religions to basically get uh, like a non – a covert relation between church and state so that they can say that there's, you know, there's a separation, but there really isn't. What do you think about something like that? Yeah, I mean – monotheistic religions make it very difficult to separate between church and state. Mm-hmm. In Christianity, theologically, there's a little more material to justify that than in, let's say, Islam. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty hard either way, because the point is, when you argue that there's one true God that lay down the law, that tells you that these are the true, this is the truth, this is how you should live, then if you strongly believe in that, it becomes kind of hard to separate because there isn't just a religious life that's your own private life. If you truly, truly believe it, then that is the way to live. So why would you 
organize a society along lines that don't follow that. And so, of course, that becomes a bit totalitarian in nature because then it's like, well, this is the one choice. This is the truth. Why should we allow choices that leads you away from the truth? Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of monotheistic religions have gone down that path. Um, There was something that I listened to actually a few weeks ago that basically resonates with your point there is I was uh, sitting at church and, you know, I... I don't particularly get too into it, but they were talking about freedom of choice. Yeah. And they were saying, effectively, well, the only choice that you can make is the right choice. Because right. there's no other, like, there is no leeway to make the wrong choice. Which, uh, the first thing in my head was, well, that's not even remotely true. There's people who have the only choice to make is wrong. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't always get, like... Sure, we have a lot of luxury for choice in places like the United States, but think of places like Syria, Sao Paulo, Brazil, right? It's not rarely ever going to be as cut and dry as that. Sure. It, it does bother me in the sense that a lot of people who partake in religions mostly just take the word at face value and accept it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you need to have some type of especially with uh, all the stuff in the news now about the abuses of the church, right? Yeah. An organization like that doesn't have this moral standing to be teaching anything ethically or philosophically along those lines if they're doing the things they're doing in secret. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem of uh, of what happens when you have organizations that, you know, by definition, institutions tend to be hostile to innovation. Mm -hmm. They and to be, once you get heavily involved with the political game, there's all sort of power plays that you have to do to stay on top, to stay in power. There's also, it's very hard to keep a, an organization kind of focus on purely spiritual pursuits when you have your hands in all sort of uh, power plays. Mm-hmm. You know, politics almost by definition is a, is a place of compromises, of... Uh, uh, you know, shady deals that sometimes you have to do and things like that. Uh, so, you know, that's part of the problem of uh, what happens with an organization that's supposed to be about religion when it gets involved in politics is that, you know, it's very, very hard to keep your hands clean of anything. And the Catholic Church hasn't done exactly a particularly good job of even trying. Mm-hmm. So that's the other issue. Yeah, something I, I know very little about is how religious organizations actually get into politics. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you know like a lot about that or what kind of ways they get into it and how they, how they use it? I mean, today or in the past or historically and up to today, the the methods would probably be pretty similar. I mean, the the theological thing is uh, nothing happens without God's approval. Mm -hmm. So, if we are the representatives of God on earth, then we have, uh, there's a political power that come in there, which is why, you know, for the longest time, there was this, um, this pressure on emperors and kings and stuff to, even though technically they held the political power and the church didn't, there was this pressure on them not to go against the desires of the church, because otherwise a pope could always excommunicate you. 
Mm-hmm. And if they did that, then all your faithful Catholic subjects were basically told, don't follow that guy anymore, which would set up a very shaky, shaky power base for a king, even without an army, even without, you know, that kind of political power, the church could essentially blackmail kings and other powerful figure into heavily listening to what they had to say and think about it 10 times before they cast aside their preferences. Yeah. Which is why in the end, the Protestant Reformation and people like Martin Luther were able to get a pass because he found the people in Northern Europe who were more than ready to protect him, not because they care about the religion, because he would give them a way to break free from that control that the church had on them. Mm-hmm. He would give kind of a good theological justification so they would not sound like crazy barbarians who are against Jesus, but they would say it's precisely because we care about the religion that we cannot be under the thumb of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And, you know, other people had tried and they got burned at the stake and Martin Luther had uh, the necessary protection at the time to make it work. The the excommunication deal in religion, I remember... I did a series for the Crusades a while ago on the show, and there was a French, I think he was a French prince. He might have been a king, I don't remember. But they like would threaten to excommunicate him, mm-hmm. and at some point it just kind of became a joke among certain countries. Yeah. Because they, they would just do it like every other month, and yeah. at some point, when does your power erode? Yeah, of course. Um, kind of just blanked out right here. No worries. With with certain things, you know. Ah, I just kept blanking. <laughs> you have anything you might be interested in talking about right now? Whatever you're in the mood for. Um. Hmm. Eh, let's kind of just take it away from the religion thing. We've been harping on that for a little while. Okay, cool. So, you know, I, I found out about you through uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm-hmm. And something that I, I like to do with the show is take a lot of history and break it down so that people can easily understand it. So, you know, getting into your show, which I haven't I haven't finished the Ronin series yet, but I'm, I'm pretty interested in it. Mm-hmm. What, from podcasting to you, like what type of platform do you like? What do you like about the platform and you know, all that type of stuff? Well, I mean, one of the beautiful things is the freedom that you have since it's just, you know, like you and your audience. There's mm-hmm. no one else that you to please. There's no one else that you need to ask permission from. You can just run free. And that's, of course, is a big plus. Yeah. Um, I think that aspect alone, the the fact that, it's really up to you to decide and just the feedback you're getting from audience, how much you want to take that into account, but that's really it. Mm-hmm. There's no one else has a say so on that. That's pretty big. You know, that's definitely something that has an impact in a way that, um, you know, it allows a degree of creative control and freedom on the parts of creators. That is not something that you could find before, something like podcasting or YouTube channels or anything like that, you know, is, is something that in the old media of 20 years ago would have never existed. Yeah. 
and I think it, it probably is really good for you because as a teacher, you you might want to talk about some things, but there's there's stuff that you can't really talk about because of maybe the organization you work for, or, you know, whatever it may be. And mm-hmm. it kind of gives you a platform to actually take history as a whole or philosophy as a whole or, you know, whatever you decide to talk about and really provide mm-hmm. it in a, a totally unfiltered light. Especially because yeah. there's things like uh, hardcore history out there, which yep. Brilliant. it shows really – I love his stuff about like the Mongols in World War One because there's so much that you learn from schools that's like, well, we're going to talk about this, but we're not going to really talk about what made that war so horrible or what made yeah. this ruler like so feared. Yeah, of course. And – that's. I think that's going to like lead to a, a revolution in education. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see it now. I'm, uh, I'm a sophomore in college right now. Yeah. And towards the end of high school, the beginning of school for me was when teachers actually started to break out of that, uh, that mold of well, this is the highlight reel of history, what people want you to know, and are starting to go into the things of like, this is why Emperor Nero was basically referred to as the devil reincarnated. Um, yeah, yeah. From a, a teaching... It's, uh, and I think that's... Of the, oh, sorry, go Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. We're going into the teaching, so I'm curious to see where you want to take it. Uh, I was going to ask from a teaching perspective, how is that kind of creating better students, or is that changing the way you get to teach well one of the things that it's weird because you would think that being able to cover something more in depth could get more boring because you could get back down down in details mm-hmm. but actually sometimes when you tell stories you need the details to humanize a story otherwise you just end up in history with a list of dates and names and stuff that you know, it may be accurate. People may know about it, but nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Or you end up very flat characters because you end up describing a historical figure in three sentences. And so, of course, you end up cutting away a lot of nuance and you just end up with stereotypes more than real flesh and blood human beings. Yeah. So the possibility of diving deep, of spending more time than you could in the regular classroom, going heavy into the story of one person or the story of that one period or something is actually more enjoyable for people because it allows you to to really feel like you're there, to really understand the complexity mm-hmm. that certain characters maybe may really fit in. Now, of course, you can do it when you're teaching giant serving courses because you don't have the time to spend uh, five hours on this one small topic and three hours hours on these other small topics. So you kind of have to alternate. You have to go big picture and now we dive deep so that you still remember why we're having fun with this, why it's enjoyable, why history is not as simple as you may think so at the first sight, you know? Yeah. Um, it really is a dance between where you have to go back and forth a lot. Um, especially with like things, uh, I just dropped my headphones there, so. No worries. With Dan Carlin, you know, I I didn't know about things like pancreation and the history of like Greek wrestling 
Oh yeah. Until I heard about that, and it made me like respect the sport so much more. Right. Because it started out as is catch wrestling with death involved. Yep. I mean, there was a, the story of a uh, the one guy who won the whole thing because he was just a giant and no one wanted to fight him. Mm-hmm. And the other dude who I don't understand how he did it, but he shoved his hand through a dude's stomach and pulled out his intestines in in the competition. Yeah. Like yeah. that type of detail is stuff that just it, it's so fascinating. Yeah, those guys did a mess around. Yeah, I would I would like to spar with one of those guys. But at the same time, in my head, it's like, well, do I really want to do that? Yeah, probably not. Because you know, there's a there's a bunch of stuff like apparently humans have gotten considerably weaker since the Greek era, mm-hmm. and people just were much stronger and able to perform feats of strength that we just can't do today or even the people who can do they're like the 0.1 percent of strength athletes yeah sure of course and then you have to think as a whole if that society was doing that on average what were their star athletes capable of yeah absolutely it's just it really like blows your mind which is it's the reason i love history so much totally that stuff is fun and you can even go deeper in time and see kind of what the in prehistory, people were like, and what it took. I mean, when you think about what it took to be alive and to survive during an ice age, when your technology is based on, you know, sharpened sticks that you use to go hunt mammoth, you need to be seriously tough, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it, from that same, uh, that book, if, if you're interested, it's called Manthropology. It's basically the history of, like, human, uh, basically athleticism. Cool. Is there was a, a hunter who they figured out his tracks, the, the pattern was there from, like, preserved in mud. Yeah. And his stride length was, like, two, maybe two and a half meters. Yeah, he, pretty key. He would run faster than Usain Bolt, like, easily. Yeah. With equipment and it, for hours on end, they were, yeah. like, concluding. And it's like, well, what happened to people as a as a society? I mean... I guess it's just necessity. We didn't need to do it anymore, so we didn't, but. Yeah, it's freaky. Yeah, yeah, I read the same story. It's, it's nuts when you think about, and in, in some way it makes sense because the life 15,000 years ago was very much more rooted in the body. Mm-hmm. Life today is so much more mental in lots of ways. So, of course, the shift has happened in a big way. And you can definitely see it in uh, in those kind of capacities. Yeah, it. I do. I, most of my history stuff is is modern, kind of contemporary, maybe a little into ancient history. But huh? studying prehistory, I I have no idea how to get into it really. But it seems like one of the more interesting parts of history as a whole. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, The the frustrating part is that there's not a whole lot. You know, the information is thin because you're relying only on archaeology, which is by definition not the best possible way to get information about a topic. But it's super interesting, that's for sure. I wish that we had some more, like, reliable means to get all the 
all that those records back or just even that evidence because yeah. it's probably it, it's definitely an advance with time I think but you know if like I've considered some of the stuff the Kali Yuga cycle in uh, Indian religion that human society just travels these cycles of 20,000 years and there's been a society like ours before that was at this peak of technology and it, it fell and we mm. just repeat that cycle over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know the validity of that, but it's interesting to consider yeah. that idea. Oh, for sure. It's uh, And there is something about the cycles of growth and collapse that seem to show up a lot throughout history. Mm-hmm. Speaking of cycles of growth and collapse, is kind of I've been thinking about it for the past few days. With most of that, it's usually in a period of like, Two to like five thousand years, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What do you think with modern society? Are we approaching that precipice? Or are we way past it, and we figured out how to stave it off? Or well, it's weird because um, you know we are in a period where where for which there is no precedent historically speaking. Mm-hmm. Now, the degree of technological innovation that exists in the last hundred years is more than the previous 10,000. So it's very hard to figure out where we are at because both our challenges and our abilities are completely different compared to, compared to our ancestors. Yeah. So there really is no model for how to tackle this or where we're going with this because we, you know, we have the technology to wipe each other out tomorrow. We have the technology to, fi- to fix some impossibly difficult problems. We are, you know, it's a weird, which is why it's so difficult to try to understand mm-hmm. uh, or the future or where we're going. Because there is no, you know, it's easy if you live in the 1500s and you see the same pattern that happened in the 1400s and the 1300s and the 1200s. You're like, okay, mm-hmm. we know where this is going. It's pretty clear. Where we're at today, we don't. We really, really don't. Mm-hmm. It's part of what I think that we have to do as a society is we need to figure out a way within the next one or 200 years to become uh-huh. a multi-planet species because it's, it's like an insurance policy yep. for the survival of the species. Like if you can get whatever, 200 million people on Mars and something happens here, well, that's more than enough of a diverse population to continue the species. Sure, of course. The problem you have there is people already fight too much on one planet. Right. So if we get to two, three, whatever, maybe we decide to become the Roman Empire of of multi-planet species and have a hundred. Yeah. We're going to have a lot worse problems if we do have them when we have to cross, you know, a hundred million miles to go and kill someone. Yeah, 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 of course. Because, yeah, that's the thing about the human mind, that our technology has evolved incredibly. Our mindset is still that of a caveman for the most part. It's kind of fascinating that we can evolve so much but still get rooted back in the past with the way we think. Oh, yeah. And it, I don't know very much about it, but, you know, psychologically there's got to be a reason for it. Well, I think the human soul, so to speak, has not evolved half as fast as uh, as our technology. 
you know, you, you know, the evolution of a species is a long-term thing. It doesn't happen quickly, you know. Uh, technology, on the other hand, can happen at a speed that's completely unlike what the evolution of a species requires. So you have this technology that moves at a speed that our evolution just can't keep up with. Yeah. It, it's definitely evidenced by things like, you know, how many people practice martial arts today or, or in team sports or interested in things like the NFL, right? Yeah. Because you could do – you could be the most – philosophically rounded person in the world and you could know all the stuff, but there's something gratifying about choking someone out with their own gi. Of course. It's part of what makes us... uh, We are very unique animals. You know, we are these weird monkeys with strange capacity, with a degree of self-awareness that's greater than most animals. It's very, very weird. Yeah. And I definitely do feel like having that is a Including that in your life, especially like, you know, things like jujitsu or things like wrestling, because they're so, they're hard, they're exceptionally hard for the average person, but they're also things that you can do consistently and not hurt yourself. Yep. To the point where you can, like, quench that thirst for wanting to, you know, go hunt a lion or kill a mastodon. Right. And calm yourself down for everything else. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's amazing the degree of flexibility that human beings have in that regard. Mm-hmm. That you, know, you can a lion knows how to do one thing to be a lion. A human can be so many different things. It's freaky. Yeah, it especially you know when you get to the whole uh, the ideal person from that type of Greek philosophy, where it's you want to be a a wrestler and an artist and a philosopher and to be able to cover that spread so effectively yep. it's like well why don't you pursue all those things right right absolutely and in some cases it's just time I, I'm completely in favor of uh, many people use their time poorly and they really should pursue many things some people use their time well it's just that there's only 24 hours in a day and there's so much that would be interesting and worth dedicating time to mm-hmm. well that's kind of the thing I struggle with now especially yeah. you know, I'm 18 but I'm about to be 19 soon and I'm a late mm-hmm. birthday but wanting to get so much stuff done like as soon as possible right so I can just know what I want to do next Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you have to you have to chill out for a bit. You have to slow that down. Yeah, and absolutely. The, you know, especially with uh, with things like college, right? Mm-hmm. I would rather get that done as fast as I could, so that I could devote time to other things. But yep. I also have to, you know, go through that four year cycle. So it's like, yep. hurry up and wait for me. But, yeah. I guess that kind of goes away with time. Yeah, that's. I think that's just the part of the deal. It's part of life, right? It's uh, definitely like most of my uh, my philosophical rooting is in Stoicism. Mm-hmm. And there's others in there, but I'd say I come back to Stoicism. Is that it's like just have no expectations because like, you're yeah. going to fail your own expectations at some point. For sure. And, you know, to to sit down, I can think 
no expectations. But deep down, like I'll I'll set them, and I won't even realize I'm doing it. Yeah. So you know you kind of have to. It's a hard now. It's hard path to navigate. Definitely. No doubt. Yeah. Um. Anything you want to add to that, or? No, I think it's uh, many people sometimes struggle with finding direction in life with that. And I think what's useful is to really sit down and write down a list. Mm With no judgment, we know just have a list of all the things that if money was no concern that you would want to do, mm-hmm. that you want to dedicate hours of your life to that make you happy. And really that's what it boils down to. Because if money is not a concern and you're not doing it for productivity, how would you fill your days? Mm-hmm. And then when you have a long list of that, then you can go down and start isolating the important ones that like, okay, some of these uh, make me happier than others. Some of these actually have the potential of something that I can turn into something I can make a living in. Yeah. Some of these are just going to be cool pastimes, mm-hmm. but you can start prioritizing a little bit what, uh, what stand out, what really is meaningful to you and what is like, sure, if I have 3 million hours in a day, I would, but is not as important. Mm-hmm. I've never actually heard someone mention it from that perspective where they figure mm-hmm. out what their, where their passions lie. I've heard people, yeah. most people, you know, they give terrible advice about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just follow your passion. I will help me find it, right? And right. Luckily, I found mine early. I I love coaching and strength and conditioning and all that. Right. But my second is educating people, which is why I started the podcast. But that whole time investment, like I love doing it, but there's points where you're sitting there just watching your audience stagnate. Because I've been doing it for a year, but I have you know relatively small numbers because I have basically no advertising or I haven't promoted anything very well. And it's like, mm, that gets demoralizing over time. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's part of it for sure. Yeah. Well, we're at 41 minutes here and we're kind of, I kind of tapped out on topics and. Cool. Yeah. Well. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for having me. Uh, coming on the show. I would love to have you again.